listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Hey, Red Church. So great to be in our second week of our new series, Our Lives, His Vision. Essentially, what we're talking about here is following Jesus. It's discipleship. And that should always be at the heart of what we do, growing in that. We're looking at abiding with him, being renewed by him and going with him. And I love in the Gospels when a Pharisee comes up to him and just is like, all right, Jesus, if you could sum it up just in one sentence, tell me what's the most important thing I need to remember. And Jesus replies and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So simple. Jesus puts this forward as the way that we should live life. Sometimes we get lost, though, in the complexity that we live in to understand what it means to actually live out such a simple principle. So I want to unpack that a little bit more today and start by looking at a passage in Ephesians, actually. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. So let's read from there. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, in his rich mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." As I said, we're living in a very complex time and I was really struck by Ryan's comment last week about working in an organisation where they reviewed with their employees every three months to reassess their values. It's crazy, but it's so true. I also was chatting to another friend who works in the um, caring profession and sits with people regularly and they shared with me that quite often or even most recently when asking their clients, what are their values, why do they do what they do, they actually had no answer. They couldn't work out what anchored them. We live in a society that is very individualistic. We are meant to know. We are designed or told that we should know what our values are, where we're headed, what we believe in, what's right and wrong. Actually, the sign of adulthood in our society is independent thought. Once you reach that, you've become an adult. That's what we encourage. That's what we put forward. That's what we're taught at school. And you know what? It is good. It's based on the original influence of Plato and Aristotle, the philosophers who were Greek, who talk about having this inner voice of understanding. And secondly, that idea of dualistic thinking. Individualistic cultures are based around innocence and guilt, whereas a collectivist culture is based on honour and shame. The way that we understand the world, the way we operate in it, what is of importance, how we judge others, how we judge ourselves sit in these frameworks. It's interesting though, I think in 2021, our individualistic society has changed that even further. The innocent and guilty was based on a moral framework, was based on 
biblical teaching originally. But that's become much more fluid now. There are so many things that are changing. And to be honest, if we're really looking at it, we probably sit more in pleasure and pain as our way of valuing and working out how to navigate the world. That's the compass we're given. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't, avoid. That's the messaging we get. Maybe you know this, maybe you've heard it before. We talk about it a lot at Ray, but it's important to reiterate because we are immersed in it. And you know what else? It doesn't actually answer some of those deeper questions that we ask. These questions of humanity that we all ask at one point in our lives or multiple times throughout. The cyclical questions of who am I? Do my choices matter? Am I loved? Can I make a difference? And sometimes we get to these questions through our circumstances, through choices that lead us to these, when circumstances change us personally, corporately, globally, breaking relationship, or even a point of exhaustion when we've tried to answer them over and over again with that value system of pleasure and pain and understanding and breaking everything down into this dualistic thinking. Today, I want to ask you, where are you at? What are you asking? What rises as I ask this question? This takes a little bit of vulnerability. And I really want to encourage you to sit with this. I'm going to ask more questions throughout. But it's because it's important to look at this. It's a space of vulnerability because firstly, it's confronting sometimes. Confronting to not have an answer to the questions of who am I and what am I meant to do with my life. It gives us a sense of hopelessness sometimes. It can be confusing because sometimes we think we've worked it out and then circumstances change again and again and we lose our footing. And finally, it can be exhausting because old scripts can rise in this time and they're painful. I'm not lovable. I have nothing to offer. I'm not enough. We don't want to sit there and our culture encourages us not to. But we need to be able to recognize these. These questions are important to who we are. That's why they keep coming up. We need to look at this because this is humanity's cry. This is my cry and your cry to understand this. In the passage we just read, in verse 2, it says, you were dead in in your transgressions and sins. When we try and use the culture's way of living, we end up at dead ends. It feels hopeless. There is a sense of no life in it. The message version says, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. Are you tired of that falling short of what you had hoped for? I think it's really helpful to look at the word sin in this passage because it comes up a few times. Growing up, um, I did a Bachelor of Theology and we talked about sin as the definition being missing the mark, which is somewhat helpful, but then some not, somewhat not. Basically, it's not living in the way that God designed us to, which is the most life-giving way to live in his law and live in his presence. But as I was reading, I came across two other descriptions of the Greek. The Greek word for sin, and forgive me, my Greek's not amazing, but it's hamatia. It actually can be broken down into two different ways that we sin or engage in that. One is a sin of omission, which is an error in understanding. It's our thinking and feeling. And the second one is a sin of commission, which is a a speech or action. So the first one, omission, can be as simple as not believing God is who he says he is. For me recently, 
I had been overwhelmed by a number of circumstances and realized it had crept in for me, um, thinking that God wasn't actually going to intervene, that he wasn't bigger than the circumstances. And I found myself having to confess and reclaim him as king and lord of all things. It can be as subtle and as little as that. The sins of commission are a little bit easier to find. And although it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, it's really important we realize it. Because as it says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The truth is, no matter who you are, we struggle with this in different ways. And we continue to. But there is hope. This is why Jesus came. So if you've not met him yet, if this is the first time you're realizing or you're tired, you've come to the end of yourself with what the world is offering, I want to tell you and let you know that there is a better way, that there are answers to these questions and there's a presence that comes when you trust Jesus and place him as King and Lord. At the end of the service, there'll be opportunity to pray and ask that if that's where you're at, if you're seeking and you're desiring to know who he is and understand what the fullness of life can be like living with him then I encourage you to take that step today. If you've been following Jesus for a while, then today might be a reminder that we need to confess in the ways that we have missed the mark. These might be minor or major, it doesn't matter. This is this thing of following Jesus. The word that we use in theology is sanctification, which again is a bit convoluted. But basically, when you declare Jesus as King and Lord, he is your saviour. You are saved. But sanctification is the ongoing work of becoming holy. It means to be set apart. The way someone said it once was, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. When Jesus returns, we will live in our fullness. We will no longer wrestle with sin. But for now, we're in that in-between time. And so we have to keep coming back to that and allow ourselves to continue to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be more like Jesus. Again, this requires humility, vulnerability, honesty, and really at the heart of it to acknowledge that we have a need. We need Jesus. It's important to be familiar with our depravity, to hold that, to recognize that, to see that. Because the gospel needs to be something that we live out, not just in a moment, not when we just first met Jesus, but actually ongoing. It's not just a story, it's a lived being. Jesus is alive and his offering of life is continual. That sense of being sanctified and made holy. It's the resurrection power. In the message version again of this passage, it says in verse eight, that saving is all his idea. God's and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. When we ask these questions, when we look at the depravity and the struggles and the sins that we found ourselves falling into, which we all do, we need saving from this. And the question that this leads us to is, will you trust him to do that? Will you trust him to save you? And who is God? Who is this God that reaches out and that promises to save us? It says in verse 4 that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. 
how does it describe God? With love and mercy. Goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God shows grace and kindness towards us. This is who we're putting our trust in. This is how he sees you. He sees you with the eyes of love. He shows you mercy, grace and kindness. There's a really beautiful illustration of this that I'd love to share with you. So I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. It's from Les Mis. I'm not going to sing it, which will save you and me some embarrassment. But if you're not familiar with the story, um, it starts with one of the main characters called Jean Valjean. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Um, he's been a prisoner for 19 years and it kind of cuts to him um, being released uh, finally after these long 19 years of being in prison. He finds himself there because he stole a loaf of bread for his wife and child at the time. He's given a document that basically labels him as a thief and is reminded of that just before he leaves the prison and is set out back into the world. He goes to look for work and finds himself working in a farm, just doing some simple tasks, gets to the end of the day and goes to seek his wages. He's paid a pittance and gets really frustrated. And the farm owner says, it's because you're a dishonest man, labeling him, identifying him in that way. Jean Valjean feels quite frustrated, understandably, and walks away a little bit annoyed, but then seeks to find somewhere to stay. He goes to an inn to ask if he can stay the night there. He has money to pay, but the inn rejects him, saying once again, you're not an honest man, we don't want you here. Again, labelling him as a criminal, rejecting him. He sits outside of the inn, pretty despondent and frustrated, still feeling quite locked up despite being free because of this label, because of the way that society sees him. All of a sudden, the local bishop sees him, comes over and says to him, hey, come stay with us. We can have a hot meal for you, a place to rest your head. The little we have, we share with you. And so he takes him in for the night and he feeds him well. He sits around the table with the other people there and then goes to bed. The next scene, we see him up in the middle of the night. He's decided to steal the silverware that his meal was served in. He walks more into that identity as a thief. It's who he believes he is. Takes them out and the next moment we, we don't know where he's gone but he's run basically. Constables have found him though and they bring him back to the bishop. They take him right before the bishop. These two constables throwing him on the ground and saying to the bishop, apparently he claims you gave these to him as a gift. And the bishop pauses, looks at Jean Valjean and says, that is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. As he's saying this, he walks over to the table and picks up two silver candlesticks, returns to Jean Valjean and hands them to him and says, you forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? 
it's such a powerful story and representation of grace. In the midst of Jean Valjean's transgressions, this bishop offers him grace and love and mercy and more. Verse 4 said, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is the same for you and for me. In the midst of transgressions, no matter where you've been, no matter what that's looked like, no matter what your life has unfolded like, even now, God loves you and looks at you and offers his grace towards you, just as the bishop did. This is what God offers us. There is so much power in grace. And as I get older, as I grow in my understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, grace becomes ever more real. But only because I have to be willing to look at my depravity. The power of it isn't really known until you recognize your need. We need saving. Grace makes us feel a bit uncomfortable too. It's this weird thing. You can't split it into wrong and right. We have to sit in the middle of it. We are not deserving of it. But also we will receive it and it's true and it's good. And we do deserve it because God loves us. It's that paradox, which is so much of faith. If we allow grace, why it makes it feel uncomfortable? It's because it dismantles our paradigm of blessing and reward. The two can't sit hand in hand with grace. It interrupts our attachment to status and ego and achievement. It challenges our black and white thinking. As Amazing Grace says in that famous song, it's grace that taught my heart to fear. There's something confronting about it because it exposes our humanity. It creates a real sense of vulnerability, but that's important. And the second or line further down, it's grace that will lead me home. It also has the power to take you to the place that you most desire to go, and that's with God, because he is the one who gives it. Will you trust him? All we do is trust him enough to let him do it, to let him save us, to let him come towards us, even when we don't feel like we're worthy. And it's a gift. As we read on in verse 8 and 9, it says, It's God's gift from the start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. Why am I laboring on this point? I'm doing it because it's really important. I felt prompted to. Because it's at the heart of our discipleship. To acknowledge and recognize our cry and our need. It's the same cry of all of humanity of the people that sit beside you as you listen to this, or the people that you see as you walk and listen, those in your neighbourhood, those in your family, those in your workplace. We all need God's grace and love. And Jesus died for this. If we don't embrace it, if we don't look at it, if we don't bring ourselves towards it, the gospel just remains a story instead of being something that is lived out within us. So how do we keep the story alive in us? The safest place to do this 
to sit in that vulnerability, to come to that place of acknowledging and needing and asking for help is with God, is abiding with him. That's why we need to return to him daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, life long. We're going to get things wrong. We're going to need to return. Remember, sanctification is that ongoing process until Jesus returns. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It feels quite harsh. But also let's remember this is about Jesus, as I said at the start. And he lived this. He spoke it, but he also lived it. Throughout the Gospels, you see that he returns to God time and again. He says, I only do what the Father authorizes. He lived this out, knowing he had to be dependent on God. And I love that God, Jesus, goes straight to the heart of things. What is our inward motivation towards God? As I started with, when he sums up everything, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He starts with our heart. And another question I want to ask you today is not, how's your Bible study going? What's quiet time looking like? How's church attendance? All important things. But I think one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves of how we're going as disciples of Jesus is how would you measure your, the temperature of your desire for God? Not what you can do, not what you can achieve, but your heart and your love for God. Where is that at? Are you pursuing him when you sense it and see it? And what does that look like? This doesn't have to be complex. When did you last notice something? When did you last hear his voice? Did you read a passage of scripture that kind of stood out to you and landed a little bit deeper? Did someone say something to you? Did you watch a film and did it prompt a thought? Was it in conversation, in your huddle, or with your family, or with your children? Was it a friend who confronted you and you felt grace and love in that? What have you done about that? I asked this of myself. In fact, it was asked me a little while ago and I found it really hard to take, but in a really good way. What am I doing with my desire and love for God? Because Jesus says that's the most important thing. How would you measure the temperature of your desire for God? And are you pursuing him? The things of what it looks like to pursue him, we will talk about in later weeks. There are so many ways and so many invitations. But the heart of it is loving God and following that. And do you know what the byproduct is? This is what Jesus talks about, the fruit that is born from that place. The byproduct is you will actually know your identity. Those questions that you ask, who am I? You are a child of God. You will be told when you spend time with him. You will live that out and immerse in that. You will be reminded you are loved. You will find your purpose and meaning when you dwell with him. God made us in his image to love him other people and creation. That's a part of our work and what we use our gifts for. Rob Reimer says, abiding needs to be our number one priority. Abiding needs to be the overarching theme of our lives if we want to be kingdom fruit bearers. If we focus on our plans, our ideas, our strategies, and you do it with our gifts, 
abilities and competencies, we will accomplish what we can accomplish. If we want to see God, but if we want to see what God can accomplish, we must abide. When we abide, we carry his presence. We carry his presence into our problems. We carry his presence into our appointments. And when Jesus shows up, kingdom stuff happens. Supernatural fruit cannot be born with human effort. Supernatural fruit can only be born with abiding and divine enablement. When our connection to the vine causes his presence to saturate our lives, kingdom fruit is so much more likely to happen. Like so much of our faith, this is cyclical. As I said earlier, abiding, spending time with God, seeking, pursuing, just loving him is something that we need to do daily and regularly to recognize our need, to be awoken to that. And Holy Spirit helps us with this. He leads us in it to recognize when God's speaking, to understand how he loves us, even in the midst of our transitions, even when we may not have known him, even if you do not know him yet, he loves you. If we accept that gift of grace and love. And the crazy thing about grace is the more you receive, the more you want to give it. And as Jesus said to us and to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. He said that to them before they headed out. So as we look at this further throughout the coming weeks, let's remember that it's so key to come to God, to just love on him, to understand that because we need him to accept that grace and be motivated by compassion. The more you sit with the cries that you have as a human, the more compassion you will have for those around you. And let that drive us to share the gospel. To be empowered by his presence as you do that, as you sit with him, as you sit in the vine, you go out empowered in Jesus' presence because you know what? You're going to run out of ideas and energy and motivation sometimes. You need to be empowered by God's presence. And that comes with abiding. And finally, to carry the gift of grace. But first you need to receive. You can't give what you haven't received. Receive that gift. Maybe for the first time today, or maybe again. He keeps offering it. We need that. It brings us to life, and it also will bring the world to life and back to God. As I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this more. What does it mean to abide? Where do we unpack this in Scripture? How does Jesus model this? And how do we do it? But for today, for now, The main thing was just to return to him in that. We're going to have some reflection questions up now for you to pray through and to reflect on. And I really encourage you to take the time to ask Holy Spirit to highlight things to you, to maybe pray and welcome Jesus into your life and declare him as King and Lord and to accept that beautiful gift of grace.